Last week, we had a really fun episode on hidden Markov models. So if you haven't listened to that episode, now would be a good time to download it and to listen to it because we're just going to pick up right where we left off. I want to hear how this resolves, how it relates to the M detector. You bet. You are listening to, um, um, what's it called? Linear digressions. Yeah, so in our last episode, we had Francesco with us, and he's here again today. Woohoo! Uh, hey welcome back. And so the the reason that we got on the topic of hidden Markov models, we were talking about them with reference to things like loaded casino dice and the stock market. But the reason we were talking about them in the first place was actually because of the um detector. The hidden Markov models are one of the tools that are used in speech recognition. So that's what we're going to talk about a little bit more in this episode, and also how uh, Francesco uses hidden Markov models in his day job of rescuing us from diseases and other terrible things that are happening inside of our DNA. That sounds fantastic. (laughs) So uh, just to recap, uh, in terms of the way you would use hidden Markov models, it's for recognizing patterns when you understand generally what the patterns might be. So in this case, you're building the um detector. You know that the two patterns are either this audio file, um, 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 and this audio file that you're listening to right now, where we're not saying that word at all. Exactly. Now, if you build a Markov model of both the um file and the non-um file, then you've got these two patterns, I guess. And then you use a hidden Markov model to figure out when are you switching into the um, and when are you switching out of the um. Yep. And from that, you can determine where the ums start, where the ums start with a decent degree of precision, mm-hmm. and automatically remove them, which of, of course was our goal. But um, uh, oh, I just said um. I was gonna say I'd like to think that we've gotten better at not saying um. Right. As soon as we start thinking about it, then I, at least for me, I start doing it a lot more. But right, exactly. So that's how it would be applied to speech recognition. And, and I think you actually did a really good job of summarizing it. I don't have a whole lot to add, although Francesco, you're welcome to jump in here. But yeah, you're right that there's the idea that there's an um state and there's a not um state and that being in an um state is characterized by sort of a certain pattern in the data points that you see uh, and that that hidden Markov models are designed to exactly do that, to look at sort of sequences of data that follow a certain pattern. And one of the things that, uh, that Francesco can talk about a little bit more um, but especially that sort of came up in the context of what we were talking about earlier. I, I mm-hmm. said that one of the things that's challenging about an um detector is that you need to have a certain flexibility in terms of how long the pattern is. Right. Mm-hmm. And that can be very difficult. But this is something where hidden yeah. Markov models can be very flexible. Yeah, they're perfect for this because uh, fundamentally what you're really doing is just adding state labels to the time points in your, in your time series. For example... Uh, let's say you're talking normally, and then you have um, like a like a moment where you say um. It could be like um or um or very short, uh, but the model will detect when you are in this um state, and if you're inside the um state, you will have a probability of sticking there. So you're basically piling up labels of um 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 um, um and then you know you're like back in the non um state again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one of the, the, the features. It doesn't matter how long you are, your arm is, it, the model will pick it up. Uh, the other thing that, you know, it, the non-hum versus um, it's just like probably the simplest possible model that you can envision. But you can make them, you can make these things a lot more uh, sophisticated or complex. For example, you can have um, like a non-hum state. 
then I think one of the things that we talked about that was really cool is that before you say uh, there's a pause. Because it's usually a thing that I say when I'm thinking. Yeah. Mm. So it's like, oh my god, I don't know what to say. So it's like you pause. The pause itself is an incredibly good signal. You can have a non-um state, then a like pre-um pause state, beginning of the um state, inside um state, exit um state, back into the non-um Wow. Mode. So you can so, make it very complicated. Complic as complicated as you want. Right. So rather than just having one state of umness and one state of non-umness, you can break down the um individually. You can figure out, oh, this is the silence before the um. Maybe actually I want to keep that when I'm removing the um. Because if you edit audio and you remove all of the spaces, then all of a sudden everyone sounds like robots, right? Conceivably, you could also use this for like before we were talking about stock market data. So rather than just state of crisis and normal state, you could have pre-crisis, beginning of the crisis, middle of the crisis, end of the crisis, recovery. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. It's really powerful when you open it up beyond just two particular states. Right. And the states, the thing about the states is that you can make them transition from one to another the, the way you want them to be because you're designing the model. So for example, if you have a pre-pause, um, uh, you know, you're never going to go from that to like middle of the um state. You always have to mm. transition uh, to the beginning state or in case it's like a, it's like a failed um attempt, uh, you can always go back to the non-um state. But you're I never going to go back from the pre-um uh, pause to like middle of the arm or end of the arm state. Same thing for the for the for the stock market thing. So that so a good example of that would be if you're starting a word that starts with you, like mm -hmm. umbrella, it kind of sounded like I was saying um there. Yeah. Uh, but if you if you break down your patterns enough, then your end of um state could uh, it could say, you know what, no, 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 he didn't do the end of um state he did a B sound, he did a not, something that wasn't, uh, you got didn't it. satisfy that. You got it. So therefore, the beginning of umbrella is not yeah. an um. And yep. the, way, the way the model would work is that you would actually, you would traverse through all the possible things. So for example, it would, would actually try to force an um there, and then you would, it would actually try to do a non-um version of it, and then you look at the probability of comparing between the two scenarios, I and see. The, uh, the one that will win is the one that, of course, is in this case, is the non-arm state. So I'm really interested to hear how this applies to genetics, because oh. that's something that I know nothing about. I know nothing about it either. Oh, so yeah. this, you may have to give us a, a simple version. The thing about uh, genetics, actually, in this case, more like genomics, is that if you're a genomics guy, your obsession really is trying to understand to decode the genome. The genome is sort of like, um, is the, uh, the DNA that is inside your cells. Mm -hmm. And what it means from a, from a, if you look at it from a, from a computational point of view, what, what the genome is, is nothing more than a series of character strings, where the characters are uh, the four uh, DNA base pairs, so the A, C, G, and T. Imagine a string that can be as long as uh, 300 million characters, and they're all like A, C, G, T, like series mm -hmm. of those. Just those four letters. Just those four letters, exactly. So the pattern that you see of this of in, the, in this text uh, string is clearly not random. It's like shaped by millions, billions of years of evolution. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, and you can see it. But the thing is that when you look at the genome, to you, if you just look at it, you can't really say, you can't tell anything because it's just too... 
it, it, it's too difficult. You wouldn't be able to um, say, oh, this part of the genome uh, regulates your metabolism or mm. you know, this part of the genome dictates your eye color. So to, to humans looking at these A, G, C's, and T's, it just looks like a bunch of garbage and gobbledygook. Kind of like when you, you know, like the, um, I, I think of the Matrix and you're looking at all the characters you're, coming you're down the screen. It. You got it. And, um, and, and they're the characters who, of course, see that and they see the world that is inside of that. It's kind of like this. You, you totally got it. That's actually, because one of the biggest challenges in, in, in genomics is what you call like genome annotation, which means for every part of the genome, assign a, a functional role to that part. So you probably, many people hear about genomes, they probably also hear about genes. So what a gene is, really is, it's just a part of the genome. It's a part of the genome that contains the, the information to make uh, proteins, which is basically, you know, what regulate life. Okay, so a gene know. is just a collection of A's and C's and G's and Pretty T's. much, yeah. It's basically uh, only 2% uh, of your genome encodes genes. So 98% of the genome that is not genes uh, is either garbage or more likely regulates how genes are being activated. In oh wow, contexts. that's crazy. And we have no clue. I mean, we, we have some clues. It's not completely unknown, but... Um, but it's not something we understand very, very well. Well, in other words, it, we can we can take parts of the genomes and we can use them, uh, but we don't have the ability... If we, if the moment we learn how, everything about this, we would have the ability to engineer life the same way people create computers mm. or machines, like that level of power. You can engineer life to do whatever you want it to do. So it's it can be incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. So, the, But the first step is, for example, when you're annotating a genome, is figuring out what these genes are. And uh, genes are non, are, are very, have a very specific uh, pattern. For example, um, uh, one of the, they, they basically are organized in these units, which are called uh, codons, which are basically like triplets of nucleotides, so the four bases. So, for mm -hmm. example, you can have a ACG followed by like a TCA, and this pattern, these uh, triplets are actually, you know, there are certain patterns that are very common. So, uh, one of the first applications of HMMs was, can we use them if we sequence, let's say, corn, and we didn't have corn, the corn genome before, uh, this point, we really want to know where all the genes in the corn genome are because we may want to modify them to make a stronger corn or we may want to use them for something else. So you look for these specific triplets or these patterns of triplets yeah. using uh, HMMs, hidden Markov models. That's right. And then from there, you can figure out this is where a gene starts. Here's where another gene starts. Here's exactly. where another gene starts. Mm -hmm. And once you have that information, then you can take these genes and maybe do something to them or analyze them individually exactly. rather than just having a big gobbledygook bunch of, of characters. Right. right. You've labeled them at that point. The point at which you can identify where they start they start and stop, then you've, yeah, you've achieved like an annotated data set now. Exactly. Fantastic. Yeah. And it works. I mean, the gene finding is one of the few I would say, uh, I mean, I'm sure the moment I say this, people are going to disagree, but it's, a, it's a one field that you can consider it to be a solved field, uh, largely because of the Markov models. Solved, you said? Solved, yeah. Like, in other words, uh, it's a field where you wouldn't want to start to get into because you pretty much, you can pretty much identify all the genes. Short of having an alien life form coming on Earth that looks nothing like whatever we have, mm. you know, because again, HMS, you know, 
do really, really well if you're, what you're finding matches your training set, but they're very horrible at discovering new things. So because we know these particular patterns that seem to be consistent across all life on Earth and all of the genes in all life on Earth, we can take any of these D, uh, strings of DNA, any of these uh, characters, basically, once mm -hmm. you map them, and figure out where the genes start. Yeah, for the most part, it's it's correct. It, that it is, works really, really well. That is phenomenally powerful. Yeah. So cool. It's uh, one of the biggest successes in computational biology, gene finding. So let me ask a, a question. One of the things we mentioned a little bit in the last episode is how uh, hidden Markov models can be a little bit computationally expensive because oh, yeah. you have to keep track of where you've been and mm -hmm. use that to figure out where you think you are. So how big are the computers that you would need to look at something like 300 million oh you know, characters? It's insane. <laughs> well, the thing is that it's very difficult. You have to have... Well, you have to have gigs and gigs of RAM. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I mean, when I think about stuff that I would run an HMM on, like, you know, if you really wanted to be sophisticated, I would say, I don't know, like a computing cluster with probably at least, you know, 60 to 100 cores. Uh, wow. And like, yeah, it, it depends on the model, you know. Um, it's not so much about the computation, but you really want to have a lot of RAM. Like, definitely, you can easily fill out 16 gigs of RAM with a poorly designed uh, HMM or, you know, or <laughs> overly complicated HMM. And part of, the re part of the difficulty, part of the challenge is actually, you know, what, how complicated do you want it to be and how complicated do you need it to be? Mm -hmm. Maybe you don't need to do a single HMM for each run. You can make a Saki HMM that kind of gives you the boundaries but not very precise and maybe mm -hmm. you can refine it in a second run. So that, that could be a strategy. Uh, and the beauty of HMMs is that you can also like diversify them, make them more complex, simpler. They're very flexible. Yeah, you can fit them pretty much to whatever you want. Linear Digressions is a podcast about data science and machine learning, produced and recorded in the studios of Udacity, a company dedicated to education. We've got some awesome courses made by people like Katie and me in data science and other tech fields. We should also remind you that all views expressed during this program were those of the speakers and not of Udacity. This is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you don't mind, leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. Thank you for being here. And we'll see you next time.